This podcast contains adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. I started my journalism career at the age of 19. I worked for a small weekly newspaper, and I ended up working in print journalism for 24 years, which is more than half my life. If you're listening to this podcast and find it interesting and important, then you too appreciate newspapers. Because I've done a lot of research via newspaper archives, and that work done by previous journalists is crucial now that we have more information. Over the years, the journalists covering the story of Michelle Lawless's murder didn't know the whole story. They didn't have access to the files of an ongoing case. But they did a fairly good job of getting people on the record at different times. I want to talk about three newspaper articles pertinent to this case. All three of them have to do with Bill Farrell and Josh Kieser. One was written in June of 1994, which was just a couple of weeks before the trial. The next was written in 2004, just before Bill Farrell's retirement. And the last one was written in 2007. The first article I want to bring to your attention was published in June of 1994. Again, just a couple of weeks before Josh's trial. The headline read, quote, Scott County Sheriff's Department, Law Enforcement, Country Style. The feature noted how Farrell rolled into work every day in his Chevy Silverado extended cab pickup truck, along with his dog Pat riding on a steel toolbox in the truck bed. He would step out of that truck with his cowboy boots and his uniform, described as a pair of blue jeans, a button-up shirt, and a white cowboy hat. Quote, we're a small country sheriff's department, Farrell told the reporter, Catherine Maya. It's not Mayberry, USA, but it's close. Farrell said. Farrell, a Democrat, displayed in his office a photo of his father shaking hands with President Harry S. Truman. His father was a deputy. Farrell told the reporter that he had memories of playing in the courthouse and around the jail as a boy. He felt like he was home when he was elected sheriff in 1977. The newspaper noted the department had zero unsolved murders in 18 years to that point, with the exception of a missing girl named Cheryl Ann Shearer, who was never found. Under the glass of his desk, the reporter noted that Farrell kept a photo of Josh Kieser. This article was written a few weeks before the trial was to start. I wonder about that photo, and I wonder when the sheriff put it under his desk glass. I wonder if it was before or after Mark Abbott identified Josh out of a lineup. The second article I want to bring to your attention came in 2004. It was October. In just two months' time, Farrell would be leaving office, giving way to Walter. The headline read, quote, Missouri's senior sheriff rides into sunset, unquote. The article noted that voters would choose between Rick Walter and West Drury to fill his shoes. Walter would win that race. The rider, this time Linda Redifer, also noted Farrell's trademark cowboy hat. The article mentioned he took his horse and his dog to visit kindergartners, and Bible school classes, and he gave the children junior deputy badges and talked to them about being good citizens. In 2004, it was finally time for him to hang up that badge. For the previous eight years, Farrell had been the longest serving sheriff in the state of Missouri. Farrell helped form the Southeast Missouri Drug Task Force in 1990, mostly in response to the growing methamphetamine problem, he told the reporter. I saw the need, Farrell said. We had no undercover operatives. A small department like ours could not do it alone. 
Farrell served on the advisory board of the Southeast Missouri Crime Lab and on the advisory board for the Law Enforcement Academy at the local university. He was a former president of the Missouri Sheriff's Association. He told the newspaper he wanted to spend time with his wife, their four children, and five grandchildren. And he could spend more time throwing lassos at the competitive team roping events every weekend. When asked about his crowning accomplishment, Farrell told the reporter that the conviction of Josh Keezer was one of his highlights. He said, We got a conviction almost entirely on circumstantial evidence. I'm really proud of the effort that went into that case and brought it to a conclusion. We haven't talked about some of this stuff yet, but this statement to the reporter would come after three people had come forward after the conviction to say that someone other than Josh had murdered Michelle. Now let's get on to the third article, published in November of 2007. A freelancer, Ben Poston, broke the story in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch that Rick Walter, the new sheriff, had reopened the murder case of Michelle Lawless. It was an extraordinary and uncommon move for a sheriff in a case with conviction. Poston's story detailed the case that had so many holes in it. Poston got a hold of Farrell, and this is what the sheriff told him, quote, You need to talk to the highway patrol instead of me because they are the ones that conducted the investigation, unquote. Farrell was throwing Don Wyndham under the bus. In all the articles written on the Lawless case in the early 1990s, no highway patrolman was ever interviewed. It was Bill Farrell, nearly every time, talking to the reporters. It was Bill Farrell who told reporters that they had no suspects and no motives, and maybe it was a random guy on the interstate. In one deposition after another, officers told Josh's defense team that it was Bill Farrell calling the shots. Even Farrell himself acknowledged it was his case. It was Bill Farrell's decision to bring Josh back to Missouri on a bogus assault charge. And then it was Bill Farrell's decision to charge Josh with murder without informing the highway patrolman. It was Bill Farrell who did not order a polygraph on Mark Abbott, Matt Abbott, or any of the snitches. It was Bill Farrell who claimed Josh's conviction was a career highlight. It was Bill Farrell who chose not to interview Josh or send anyone to check out Josh's alibis. And it was Bill Farrell, now in 2007, saying the case belonged to the Highway Patrol. And it was Bill Farrell on that stand in 1993 saying, I don't know when Al Lowe's asked him why he didn't take blood from Mark Thomas Abbott as he had done with so many others. When the case was being investigated, Bill Farrell was in charge. When they got the conviction, Farrell was in charge. But in 2007, when Rick Walter and Josh's attorneys and journalists were unwinding that thread, suddenly it was the highway patrol who was responsible for Farrell's biggest accomplishment. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to The Lawless Files. I thought maybe he had said that his friend might have been a policeman or a sheriff or something like that. 
but I wasn't really clear on what he was saying, whether it was just a friend and they called the police or if this person was some form of a law officer. When uh, you were assigned as an investigator, was uh, Mark Abbott a suspect in this killing? No, sir, not at any Did time. Did you give this statement? When I was interviewed by the police, it seemed like they, namely Brenda Shivitz and Bill Farrell, just wanted me to say that Josh Keezer killed Michelle. I was enticed by them by the possibility of receiving the $10,000 reward, but I did not tell them that Josh killed her because I had no reason to believe that Josh did it. Okay, so let's reset and review where we're at in the timeline. We've got four jailhouse informants from Cape Girardeau County who had come forward to implicate Josh Keezer. They had conflicting stories. Two of those four would come forward in the summer of 1993, about four months after the charges were brought against Josh, saying that the story had been concocted as a means to get better deals on their sentences. One of the four was released from custody and would not testify at trial. In the meantime, officers learned through Josh's ex-girlfriend that he was known to drive her best friend's car up and down Broadway in Cape Girardeau in the summer of 1992. That friend, a girl named Christy Nail, lived about a mile from the murder scene. Crime lab technicians sprayed the car with a chemical testing for potential bodily fluids. The chemical also revealed potential blood in the sleeve of Josh's leather jacket. A few weeks after the Cape Girardeau County inmates started to retract, two new jailhouse informants, this time from Scott County, signed statements saying Josh also told them that he had murdered Michelle Lawless. One of them, Wade Howard, if you remember, was a murderer who killed his stepfather with a deer rifle. The other... Jeff Rogers was a child molester. Howard recanted, but unrecanted later, sticking to his deal, which gave him 15 years for the murder rather than the possibility of life without parole for first-degree murder. Howard would later say he was promised a deal and threatened if he didn't sign the statement. In the end, Rogers decided not to testify, but many years later, he testified that he too was threatened by the sheriff. So of the six people who at one time or another said Josh confessed to the crime, three of them recanted before the trial, and two of those three would unrecant. Of the other three, two completely bailed and had no other involvement. In Cape Girardeau County, Prosecutor Morley Swingle, a media darling for most of his career, stuck to the deals even when the county's inmates began switching their stories. This idea of trading years for testimony is a pretty terrible idea in the justice system but particularly so if the testimony is absolutely critical to the case. In Josh's case, with no physical evidence, a man's future hinged on whether these guys were telling the truth. That pawn shop justice is shady in the best of circumstances, but when those guys begin changing their stories, all deals should be off. This isn't fun and games. This is not a swap meet. Those deals should have been rescinded from the moment they recanted. There's another important nuance here that you should know about. Remember Sean Mangus? He was the first informant, the man who made up the story and recanted to Josh's attorneys in 1994. But a month before he recanted to Josh's attorneys, the same informant recanted to an investigator with the Scott County Prosecutor's Office. That investigator's name was Bill Stokes. Stokes gave that document to the Missouri Attorney General Special Prosecutor assigned to the case, Kenny Holsoff. That document was not handed over to the defense. It was yet another Brady violation. 
That document was found many years later with other files belonging to the AG's investigator, Luther Van Godsey. About the time we announced and rolled out our first episode of the Lawless Files podcast, Stokes reached out to Josh, and Josh ended up sharing that message with me. Stokes told Josh that he personally delivered the Mangus report to Kenny Holshoff, which was not passed on to Josh's attorneys. Stokes said he sat through the trial and wondered why the evidence was not presented. Quote, I wanted to let you personally know in my 36 years of law enforcement that I believe you were totally innocent the entire time. I believe evidence against you was tainted, and I am sorry the system failed you. I am sorry I never came forward before now, but I truly wanted you to know how sorry I am. To this day, Stokes wrote in his message to Josh, I truly believe you were railroaded by that tyrant sheriff and his girlfriend deputy. I hope you understand this. End quote. He also criticized Rick Walter, saying Walter never should have let witnesses go at the crime scene, and that the highway patrol, not an inexperienced officer, should have responded to the scene. Of course, these criticisms are not based in fact. Walter was responding to a stalled vehicle report, not a homicide. West Drury released the witnesses at the scene, not Walter, who was simply trying to preserve the scene as much as possible while supervisors were en route. Additionally, the highway patrol was called and assisted in the investigation. Anyway, Stokes asked Josh that he keep that message private, adding that he would not be interested in being interviewed for the podcast. After much consideration, Josh believed that this was not a source that needed any protection. Stokes had reached out to Josh, and Josh did not agree to keep the conversation private. Josh replied with a list of questions, pointed questions. Josh asked how the informant's statements were orchestrated. He asked about the grand jury, about why his alibi wasn't investigated, and why Mark Abbott wasn't investigated. After Josh sent those questions, Stokes blocked him. While Josh appreciated the man's apology, ultimately Stokes gave an oath to the Constitution, and he worked for the taxpayers of Scott County, Missouri at the time of his conviction. But Stokes watched, stunned but silent, as Josh's constitutional rights were violated. Josh released those messages to me, and now I'm sharing them with you. Meanwhile, while recanted statements were being delivered and ignored by the special prosecutor, and while prosecutors were sticking to their guns despite snitches changing testimonies, Josh was facing battles on multiple fronts. In addition to the murder charge, he was facing an assault charge in Sykeston in which he was accused of assaulting the father of his ex-girlfriend's new boyfriend on December 24th or 25th, a time in which Josh was in Kankakee. And then there was another alleged assault on Halloween night that year in which a man with an upside-down cross painted on his forehead insulted women leaving a bar and flashed a gun at the men who came to their defense. This too was a bogus charge. Josh had alibis that he was, again, in Kankakee on Halloween. And if this investigation isn't crazy enough... In January of 1994, we enter the methamphetamine phase of this story. While Josh was fighting for his life, quite literally, Mark Abbott, Matt Abbott, and their friend Kevin Williams, and others, were neck deep into a meth ring. 
According to a grand jury indictment from several years later, the co-conspirators began this ring, quote, at a time unknown to the grand jury, but including in and around the 24th day of January 1994 through the second day of February 1996, unquote. The federal indictment, a case investigated by the DEA, sent 11 people to prison in that first phase. Those names included Mark and Matt Abbott, and Kevin Williams would be indicted in the second round of this investigation. At least from January of 1994 through the summer when Scott County was putting the screws to Josh Kieser, Williams and the Abbots, among others, were building a methamphetamine network. They were driving out to Southern California, buying large quantities of methamphetamine, pounds at a time, bringing it back, cutting it up, and selling it to smaller dealers. These drugs were making it into the hands of teenagers and high schoolers. These drugs killed people. They ruined marriages and relationships. They turned otherwise good and decent people into thieves. Methamphetamine was and is a monster of a drug. So addictive, so powerful, so ruinous, and so very profitable. A little more than a month before the trial was to start, Rosner spoke to inmate Joseph Flores, who also was a cellmate of Josh's. Flores stated that Josh always maintained his innocence, saying that they had him confused for someone else because he was in a different state. And so May rolled around and the trial process began. There were pre-trial hearings, which were set for the defense to make its case to suppress evidence. At one point, Rosner, Josh's attorney, asked Don Wyndham, the highway patrolman, about the arrest. Wyndham announced, quote, No, I told you a while ago, the sheriff got those warrants on his own. I did not have anything to do with getting the murder warrants. I was bringing him back on the assault charge. The sheriff got the murder warrants on his own. A moment later, he said, quote, I did not meet with the prosecuting attorney. I was not present. I had no idea that it was even going to take place, unquote. Mark Abbott testified in this pretrial hearing too. I've had a couple of different sources tell me they believe Matt, not Mark, testified at least one of these hearings in St. Genevieve. Sources told me Matt was the more intelligent and disciplined of the twins, and he could better keep the story straight. And under cross-examination, Rosner asked a great question. He said, quote, Mr. Abbott, do you have any form of identification with you now? Yes, Abbott replied. May I request to see it? Rosner said, No, I don't, the twin replied. I thought that I did, but I don't. When you look back at this case and you read transcripts over and over again, certain things jump out at you at different times. The thing that jumped out at me at this particular hearing was that Rosner was a much more effective interrogator than Lowe's was. That's probably because Rosner had a more intimate knowledge of the facts of the case. The question to Abbott about his identification was entertaining to read. It was a bold and unpredictable move. I just wish he would have taken it one step further. I wish he would have demanded that Abbott on the stand prove that he was Mark. I wish he would have had required fingerprints or something. But really, doesn't it seem odd as a matter of procedure that an identical twin would be allowed to testify without showing identification? The twin was allowed to continue to testify. 
The case moved on, and Josh was ready to be done with his case. He was ready to get back to his normal life. Josh's defense at this point had such a winnable case. The prosecution had no motive, no proof he knew the victim. The defendant had alibis who could put him five hours away just a couple hours before the murder. Then you had the recanted statements by the snitches. You had other people with motives. The state had nothing except Mark Abbott's word to put Josh at the crime scene. Not a single piece of physical evidence existed against Josh Kieser. So I know by now you're listening to this. I know you have to be baffled. And I've told you a lot by now. A lot of things that just don't make sense. And I'm sure you have a ton of questions about how everything transpired. But I'm sure one of the biggest questions on your mind right now is how in the world did they convict Josh Kieser when all of these snitches tried to recant? And there was more than just the recanted statements. Josh's attorneys also had letters sent between Mangus and Weisinger where they talked about their recanted statements. So we're now at the point in the timeline when the state of Missouri tackles that little problem. It was June 7th, 1994, 10 days before the jury would decide Josh's fate. Don Wyndham would explain what happened. It was another pretrial setting with attorneys and judges and a few witnesses. Wyndham explained that he flew to Louisiana to find the snitch, Sean Mangus, and find out why he recanted his statement. And this is what happened as a result of that interview. Wyndham reminded the inmate that it is a crime to give a police officer a false statement. And then out came the story that would rescue the prosecution's case. So Mangus told Wyndham that he only gave that recanted statement because David Rosner, Josh's attorney, made statements that Kieser was contacting dangerous people within the Latin Kings gang and letting them know that Mangus would be testifying against him in court. Mangus said he made the recanted statement out of fear, not out of good conscience. He was put in witness protection and he would testify against Josh at the trial. When I told you in a previous episode that the decision to send Rosner alone for the interview would cost Josh later, this is when that decision became so costly. Again, that wasn't Rosner's decision to make, it was Lowe's. Money and resources were tight. Any number of decisions or non-decisions cost Josh Kieser dearly, but this one was one of the most damaging. Too much on your case. So, so I mean, I wanted, and, and I told brother that this too, there was even a conversation with Al and Sam Drews that, hey man, I don't feel comfortable talking to these snitches without a prover with me. Let me take a secretary. Let me take an investigator. Let me take, record them. That conversation was had several times. That's the voice of David Rosner, Josh's attorney in 1994. In the middle of that interview, I needed to call Josh. And so I put him on speakerphone. I was getting his permission to access files that David had on hand. During the course of that phone conversation, the topic of interviewing the snitches came up. So this is part of that conversation. And Albert thought that I was, Albert was upset with me throughout the course of your case because I was spending too much time on it. But you know, why was I spending so much time on it? I knew you were innocent. Kenny Holshoff, again, the special prosecutor from the Sykeston area, who was assigned by the Missouri Attorney General's Office to handle the prosecution, 
told the court that, quote, in a nutshell, the defense counsel, Mr. Rosner, has made himself a witness in this case. There were statements taken of two state witnesses by Mr. Rosner that no one else was a party to, and it is very likely that the very process of his conduct in that interrogation is going to become an issue. The defense has sort of painted us all into a corner, I feel, he said. Holshoff was throwing Rosner under the bus. He was effectively accusing Josh's attorney of a crime, of an intimidating a witness. I don't think Holshoff believed Rosner threatened a witness for one minute. It was simply a legal ploy. Justice be damned. Holshoff wanted the win. Judge Murphy, you know, I went to school with his my classmate, grade school and stuff with his son, Brian, and I, you know, we were friends, so Stan knew me from way yeah. back when, and he knew that Holshoff was just smearing me from, and he knew it wasn't true. That's why he didn't disqualify me. He was looking for middle ground, and you know, the middle ground was I got to sit with Albert and spoon feed him the case. But here's a guy that did this, and, and you know, sat face to food. Oh, David. It's just a trial. This isn't personal. It was personal. He even, Kenny Holsoff had Van Godsey of the Attorney General's office run an NCIC rap sheet, and they even knew stuff about me raising hell in college. He asked me about a phone booth that I knocked out of the pavement up in Adams County, Illinois. He's like, well, how the hell did you know that? Well, we're just doing our investigation. I was like, well... Okay, I got arrested, so I know that somebody tapped the NCIC database. Yep. Kenny, you can't be doing that yep. shit. It was atrocious. Kenny Holsoff put this, I mean, this guy lost 14 years of his life. Holsoff who knew that Josh was a poor kid whose grandparents could most likely not afford another lawyer, was arguing that Lowe's and Rosner should be dismissed from the case. Josh actually testified that day. Remember, this was in front of a judge and the lawyers only. This wasn't for a jury to hear. Josh told the judge he wanted to keep his attorneys. And he was forced to say he understood that his attorney could be called as a witness and that at that point there would be a conflict of interest. In that situation, Rosner would have to put his own interest in front of Josh's. Josh understood it. Holshoff asked Josh, quote, What if something changes between now and then where Mr. Rosner and Mr. Lowe's feel it is important that Mr. Rosner take the stand and he does in fact do that? <laughs> Here was Josh's response. He said, quote, He is not going to be ineffective because I am an innocent man. That is not going to be needed because I am innocent, unquote. So the judge overruled the state's motion to disqualify Rosner from representing Josh. But the state had made his strategy clear. They were going forward with Mangus as a witness based on the idea the recanted statement was made under physical threat of the defendant's attorney. Wade Howard unrecanted too. Remember, he's the one who murdered his stepfather. The investigator for the Missouri Attorney General's office, Van Godsey, told the court that Howard said Rosner wrote the statement, but the parts that were initialed, Howard said those parts were the parts that should have been taken out. Not that he actually agreed with them. He said he didn't see some of the things in the statement that he had initialed and pointed out things that were not true to Rosner. Somehow this made sense to the judge, I guess, or the jury. I don't know what to say. 
This convicted murderer, whose charges were dropped from first-degree to second-degree murder, was saying something about initial chicken scratches. Somehow this was more credible than Josh's friends and family who remembered him banging on the door the night of the murder, you know, the witnesses that Farrell, Shivitz, Holshoff, Godsey, or Wyndham never bothered to question. I want to take you back a minute to recall the previous episode when we discussed Howard's case. The sister of Howard's victim told the Southeast Missourian that local prosecutor Christy Baker Neal had exchanged Howard's testimony against Josh for the lowering of charges from first-degree murder to second-degree murder. Remember, he got 15 years for lying in wait and shooting his stepfather with a 30-30 rifle. When he unrecanted, he was already serving his 15-year sentence in prison. The deal had already been done. Now let me read you a comment made by Baker Neal in the pre-trial setting when Kieser's attorneys brought up the idea that the prosecution was making deals with witnesses. This is what Baker Neal said, quote, Judge, the state is well aware of this obligation to disclose any deals made between any state witnesses who are going to be testifying against the defendant. We have no deals. We have no deals that have been made at this time between any of the state's witnesses and the state of Missouri. That is why they have not been disclosed. In the future, if some plea offer or some type of position is offered, we will let the defense know. Unquote. Yeah, that didn't happen. In addition, the defense was still fighting to get documents released by Scott County. Among the documents they were seeking were the minutes from the grand jury. Baker Neal, despite orders from the judge to release the minutes to the defense, could not produce them for Josh's attorneys. She could not find them. She had months to produce them. She could not because they were lost. On and on and on it goes like this with this case. I'm an independent journalist, but I'm also human, and I've consumed this case backward and forward for four years. I started out learning about this case a long time ago from a neutral position. I had no dog in this fight. I believed at one point that Josh's conviction was the result of tunnel vision. I thought maybe some mistakes were made, that police believed the wrong people. But that's not what this was. The state and Scott County hid evidence. Detectives made false statements under oath to the judge and in front of the jury. They steered this investigation away from real suspects. The lies of commission and omission, the mistakes, the crimes, they packed it all into a grenade. The weapon was wrapped in robes delivered by men and women in suits and badges. It was thrown into the lap of a boy from Kankakee, a kid who was abused and often neglected, the son of a woman who once stood up to the sheriff when he tried to arrest her boyfriend. The full power of authority in Scott County and the state of Missouri itself powered down on this kid. But this kid had a name. His name was Josh. And he had a mother, as flawed as she was, who loved that boy. And she knew as well as he did that Josh didn't kill the girl with the oval face and the freckles. I wish I could tell you that we were done listing the injustices, but there are more to come. We still have a long way to go. Josh was doing his best to keep his emotions in check and stay focused. He was doing his best to keep his family from breaking down. 
you know, when when you're hearing Mark Abbott uh, testify and point you out as the person he saw in that car, you know, what? How, how do you just not lose lose it? I did. I wasn't afforded the privilege to be angry in that moment, Bob. My I, my life was on the line, and anger distracts. Um, that makes sense. Kevin Costner uh, was in a movie, baseball movie, years ago. I can't remember the name of it, but. Um, Within the with throughout the movie, within the movie, he he does this thing when he's on the mound, and he enacts a mechanism that everything goes away except him and the pitch, because that's the only thing that mattered in that moment. The only thing that mattered during my trial was winning because I was innocent. The only emotion I allowed myself to feel, believe it or not, was happiness because I thought I was going home. I mean, my family was with me. My mother, my father, my grandparents, my Aunt Kathy, some friends were there. And I thought I was going home. I had to be strong for everyone. Sure. There was um there was some incidents that happened emotionally. Throughout the trial, there was, um, they had us in an area that had multiple rooms that our family was allowed to, to inhabit. It was this, um, back area. There was like some law books in one room and there was some conference rooms to the back and we were, we were allowed to congregate in all of them behind a locked door. And there was, um, one incident where my, I, was looking for my aunt, my aunt Kathy, and I found her standing alone in a room without the lights on, and she was crying. She was scared, and I comforted her. There was an incident where my grandfather was standing in the um, back conference room. The lights were on, and he was standing by a window. And you can tell he was crushed that sadness and heartbreak had set in and he just didn't understand how they can be saying these things about his grandson and how they could be trying to do this to his grandson. And this rock of our family He couldn't be the rock in that moment. He needed me to be. So I was. There was an incident where every time we came and went from the courtroom to the back room, the media was everywhere. 
questions, questions, cameras, video, photographs, everything. And (laughs) my my family had decided they were going to form a wall. And uh, when no one going to be in front of that wall, it wasn't my father, Charlie Kieser. He was the only one that was going to be there. He was going to protect his son. And he got yelled at. He got yelled at by the jailers. They were telling him, you can't do that, sir. You can't do that. He said, and my dad and his, uh, <laughs> his colorful way of communicating, let him know in no uncertain terms that he can do whatever he wanted to because that's his son. You can just see the sadness with my father. And none of his family other than him was there. None of his brothers, none of his sisters, none of his nephews and nieces, not his mother, none of them, just him. Only three people there with the last name Keezer in that moment was me, him, and his ex-wife, my mother. Everybody else there was my mother's family. So he kind of felt alone. You could see that. During this week, um, the trial was June 13th to June 17th in 1994. My cousins had their birthdays. My cousin James and Jason. Jason was in prison at the time. James didn't come to the trial because I told him he didn't have to. He had an opportunity. He was a musician. He had an opportunity to record in Chicago with his band. And he asked me if it was okay if he didn't come because of this opportunity. And I said, of course, I'll see you when I get home. The very next uh, weekend, following weekend, I was convicted falsely on Friday. That weekend was Father's Day weekend. Hmm. I thought I was going home. When Abbott, when the cops, when these, all these people got up and testified against me, I thought I was going home. I thought the jury was listening, but they weren't. One of them, in fact, fell asleep during the trial. One of the jurors fell asleep. I'm not going to go into all the details of the trial. Most of what was said, you already know. Holsoff, a polished attorney with a smooth delivery, which was honed during his participation in community theater, played the role of a credible, confident, sharp prosecutor with a touch of Southern charm. Al Lowe's, an older gentleman, barked in his curmudgeon style, speaking with no reverence toward the teenage victim. On one day of the trial, he actually soiled himself slightly. A source said he could see and smell the results of this accident. I take no pleasure in sharing this detail, but it goes to show that while the evidence, or lack thereof, was in Josh's favor, the jury was seeing two sides of justice represented by two very different men, 
one who had his shit together, and one who both literally and figuratively did not. The two sides argued over the credibility of the snitches. Lowe's fought back against Mark Abbott's story. Al Lowe's told the jury that none of the physical evidence pointed toward Josh. Holsaw pointed out that many of the tests were quote-unquote inconclusive, leaving room for interpretation that maybe they were actually somehow linked to Josh. Holsoff even mentioned that the swatches cut out of Josh's jacket were so small that they could not be verified as blood. Regardless of the dueling personalities and styles, Josh was still winning this case. The state provided no physical evidence. The state had no motive. The state provided no evidence that Josh even knew Michelle. So let's look at this thing cynically just for a minute, okay? The state was telling the story that Josh somehow, someway, even though he owned no car, appeared at the girl Christy Nail's house in the middle of the sticks in the dead of night to get the keys from under her car and steal that car. Then he somehow knew where Michelle would be at that time of the night and chased her down and got her to stop all by himself as the state offered no evidence that Josh had anyone with him. Then he forced her down the embankment, and then he hit her over the head and somehow carried her back to the car, leaving bruises on her wrists, but not dragging her. The state then claims that this street-savvy Latin Kings gang member shot the girl with a weapon that they could not present to the jury. Then their story goes that after he killed her, this gang member, he didn't bolt from the scene. Instead, he decided to fill up the car with gas. How very kind of him. So he decides to go to the gas station, which was closed with the lights off, and then he thinks, you know, it's a good idea after just killing a girl to approach a man who is making a call on a payphone. And since this street smart gang member knew how important it was to fill up a gas tank after he's borrowed a car, he decides to show his face and ask the stranger where he could get gas. And let's not forget that Josh lived many years in southeast Missouri and had been to this area before with his girlfriend. But... He also needed to ask directions to a gas station because he was also unfamiliar with the area. So after not finding a gas station, Josh, the gang member, took the car back to his ex-girlfriend's friend's house because he no longer needed the car. Right? I mean, I guess he had nowhere else to go, so he drops off the car. And then he what? Hitchhikes back to Kankakee? The state could not claim where Josh went before or after the murder. And that's hard to do when you never interview him. And when you decide it's not important to ask him questions, to get him on the record to prove or disprove his story. In my mind, that story right there is all Lowe's would have needed to have told the jury to snap them out of the spell Hulshoff put them under. But we aren't to the closing statement just yet. Before that would happen, the prosecution would need a miracle. And it arrived just in the nick of time. So we have to talk about Todd Mayberry. You remember I emphasized that name quite a bit in earlier episodes. This part of the story is really upsetting to me personally. To review, here's the clip from Michelle's diary. October 31st. Slept late. Got things situated and went and got rest of stuff. Went and got Lilisha and Chantel. Glittered ourselves. Mom and Aunt Sheila gave me trick-or-treats. Went to John Worley's party. Lilisha left and came back. Drank and flirted and stuff. Todd Mayberry liked me. When we left, kissed almost everyone. Took Lelisha home and Chantel and I snuck out and went to McDonald's and cruised. Couldn't find Lyle, so went home to Chantel's. Then there was the interview that Don Wyndham and Brenda Shivitz did with Michelle's good friend Lelisha Odell. 
Lalisha told the cops in January that Michelle and Mayberry had been at the Halloween party. They'd been kissing. She sobered up and stopped and wanted to leave the party. The story was told to Lalisha by Chantel Kreider. Based on that information, they interviewed Todd Mayberry. He told a somewhat different story. He said they kissed a few times, she suddenly decided to leave, and he was like, whatever, and they parted on okay terms. Neither Michelle in her diary nor Mayberry in his interview claimed that there was any kind of drama. Only Chantel provided that information. Scott County, presumably Bill Farrell, but maybe Don Wyndham, ordered a blood draw on Tom Mayberry. Because Todd Mayberry kissed Michelle at a Halloween party, and they allegedly fought. They knew the situation. They knew the name of the boy she kissed and fought with. They met with him. They saw his face. They heard his voice. They had the man's blood. If Christy Baker Neal, if Kenny Holsoff had really studied the case, they too would have known this. The state had just rested its case. It was Josh's turn to present his side. It was his turn to call his witnesses who saw him in Kankakee, Illinois the day before, the day of, and the day after the murder. Of course, Holshoff would make the claim that they were just trying to protect their boy to keep him out of trouble. Of course, he had nothing to back this up as no one from Scott County or the state of Missouri had interviewed anyone so they could make that claim. And then on the fourth day, the second to last day of trial, Michelle's friend, Chantel Kreider, who had been watching the trial for days, told Lalisha Odell that she recognized some faces from the Halloween party. Lalisha went to one of the prosecutors. Chantel was pulled into a quick meeting to tell them what she knew. Apparently, Chantel told the attorneys that Josh was the boy she saw kissing Michelle on Halloween night. There was a conference held in the judges' chambers. Josh's attorneys argued against allowing her to testify. Rosner remembered a report about such an interaction at a party, but he couldn't remember the name of the officer who did the interview. They had no time to call Mayberry in for questioning. They were allowed to question Chantel before she took the stand, but they could not fully investigate her claims. When her name was introduced to the judge, Christy Baker Neal corrected her colleague. It's Franklin now, Baker Neal said. She just got married. Kreider, months before testifying against Josh, had married a man, David Franklin, whose name I found in the speed bump files. And the judge, Stan Murphy, said, Okay, you can bring her on as a rebuttal witness. Could you tell these folks your name? Chantel Kreider. And um, would you spell your name for the court reporter? C-H-A-N-T-E-L-L-E. Ms. Kreider, what, what town do you live in? Sexton, Missouri. And did you know Angela Michelle Lawless? Yes, I did. Uh, how, how well acquainted were you with her? We were just like best friends. Uh, were you the same age or generally the same age? She was a year and one half older than I am. Do you recall when she was found murdered along Interstate 55? Yes, I recall that. Ms. Greider, do you recall a party some days before she was murdered? October 31st, 1992. 
How do you recall the date with so much certainty? Because I remember who I was with. And I remember the year because I was with him, and I am no longer with him anymore. You, you had another boyfriend at that time? Yes. And, and that helps you put this time in there? Yes. And as far as the date being Halloween, how are you certain that it was Halloween in 1992? It was a Saturday night, and you could come dressed up, or you didn't have to come dressed up. It was a Halloween party. Where was this Halloween party, Miss Kreider? John Morley's trailer in Benton. Uh, is that within the city limits or, or outside the city limits? Right outside the city limits. Ms. Carter, uh, who were you at this party with? Lalisha Odell and Michelle Lawless. Uh, give us your best approximate time that you got there. 8.30. And, and why are you certain about that time? Because they came over to my house and we all got ready at my house. And we left about 7 or 7.30, drove around, and it took us a while to find it. And we got there about 8.30. Did uh, you remain there at the party for the duration of it or until you all decided to leave? Yes. Did one of the three of you, did you go to the party with anyone other than Alicia Odell or Angela Michelle Lawless? No. It was just the three of you? Yes. Did, did one of the three of you leave the party at some point? Yes. Uh, which one? Lalisha Odell. Did she return? Yes, she did. Now, uh, describe this party for us a little bit. It was a Halloween party. You could dress up or you didn't have to dress up, whatever you chose. It was two kegs, and toward the end, the kegs got dry, and they were going to leave to get to go get more beer. I had a half of a beer and a cup, and Michelle had one, and Lelisha didn't have any. Lelisha left because she was bored and she wanted to go to Sykeston, and then she came back. Uh, what would you say would be the ratio of the mix of boys and girls at the party? There were more guys than girls. There was maybe eight hmm. girls at the most, and the rest were guys. And uh, how many guys would you say were there? Well, there was a total of 25 to 30 people, and like I said, eight were girls and the rest were guys. During the course of the evening, ma'am, did, did you have a meeting or contact with an individual that sticks out in your mind? Yes, I did. Could you briefly describe how it is that you met this person? Well, everybody was walking around talking, and me and Michelle had went in the house to use the bathroom inside the trailer. We was walking outside the trailer because everybody was in the back of the trailer where everybody was drinking and the bonfire was. We got to the edge, and Josh Keezer came up to us, and he asked me out. I told him no, and he tried to kiss me, and I told him no. He called me a... At this point, Lowe's objected. He was afraid that they were going to get into some sort of sexual assault territory, which would be prejudicial to the jury. Miss Kreider, this conversation, we, we will term it at that, just a conversation. Was that inside or outside the trailer? Outside. And were you fairly close to the person that you identified as Josh Keezer? Yes. In fact, you looked over somewhere. Would you, would you point to the man that you believe to be the one that you saw at the party? Is he wearing a white shirt with no jacket and tie at the council table there? Yes. Let the record reflect that the witness has identified the defendant. Ms. Kreider, after this contact that you had with the defendant, what happened? Was, was Michelle Lawless standing nearby you at the time? She was standing with me. Okay. What, what, if anything, did you see the defendant say or do to Michelle? He asked her out also, and she said no. What, if anything, did he respond? And, and how did he respond when she said she didn't want to go out with him? He called her a stupid bitch, and he got mad. He didn't like the rejection. And, and the distance that you were from him, were you able to smell any alcohol on his breath? Yes. At this party, various people were drinking, I take it? Yes. 
And and had you had occasion to see people become intoxicated before in your life? Yes, I have. And, and how would you describe, in your layperson's opinion, the state of his sobriety? Drunk. And were you working at the time? Did you have a job? Yes, I did. What time did you have to go to work the next day? Seven. What time did Alicia O'Dell, to your knowledge, have to go to work? At six. In the morning? In the morning. So, uh, as a result, did you stay late at the party or, or leave fairly early? Fairly early. Approximately, what time do you think that you left? Twelve at the latest. It might have been a little bit before twelve, but no later than twelve. And um, who, who did you leave with? Michelle Lawless and Lelisha O'Dell. Uh-huh. Did you ever see the defendant that night as you were leaving? Yes, we did. Can you tell the jury what you remember? Yes, I can. We got in the car to leave, and Lelisha was driving the car. Michelle was in the middle, and I was on the passenger side. We had the windows down. He came up to the car, and he asked if he could, and and we said no. He grabbed a hold of the door handle, wanting us to stay, and we said no. He took off with him holding on to the door handle. That was the last time you saw the defendant, is that right? Yes. Uh, until when? Until yesterday when I came inside the court. And tell the jury what happened. I came inside just to watch the trial, and I was sitting there, and I looked at him, and when I seen his face, it started coming back to me who he was, because I didn't get to see who he really was on the television, newspapers, or anything, and when I came here, it came back to me. Ms. Kreider, then as you were able to get a good look at this defendant seated here in the courtroom, were you able to see him? Yes. And, and did it click for you? Yes, it did. Is there any question in your mind, Ms. Kreider, that the individual who asked Angela Michelle Lawless out at that Halloween party is, in fact, the defendant? There is no doubt in my mind. Your witness. Chantel did what evidence could not. She gave the jury a connection. She gave the jury a motive, as weak as it was. It was still a really shaky, unbelievable story. But now it becomes a little easier to make these unrelated dots form a picture of something. The closing statements were a disaster, and it really came down to personalities. When I read Lowe's closing statements, I tried to imagine his raspy voice. It was an unorganized mess. Instead of telling a story about how ridiculous the state's case was, Lowe's went down the witness list and like tried to poke holes in all the statements. He jumped around here to there and back and forth. When you understand the case as I have come to understand it, Lowe's closing statement was so very disappointing. On the other side, the prosecution distorted the facts and simply made up stuff. They tried to convince the jury that they found blood in Josh's jacket. They actually told the jury that the inside of Christy Nail's car lit up like a Christmas tree, when in fact the samples were so small they could not determine if it was blood at all. There was no Wooten report. There was no mention that the state's key witness had earlier identified a black man. There was no evidence of a deal presented to witness Wade Howard. There was no suspect list with the name Mark and Matt Abbott written on it. The statement that Sean Mangus had made to an assistant prosecutor was not presented because it was withheld from the defense. And behind the scenes, there could be no proof offered that a grand jury had even been called. Even though the judge had ordered Baker Neal to turn over the minutes from the grand jury, she could not do so. 
She said she lost them. No evidence exists that a grand jury was even called. But now, there was this surprise witness, and the judge said that was okay. It was just bullshit. I mean, she sat in there for two days before she even, before they even came up and said, oh, we got a witness that says she was at a party and Josh was talking about it. Yeah. Michelle. Everyone knew that it wasn't me. And they put her on the stand and let her turn the tide of that trial and let her essentially convict me of murder. Because that was the last testimony on the stand. That was the lasting imprint and lasting impact for the jury. That was it. And then there's this, Jim, to close things out. A verbatim account given by Kenny Holshoff, who would later become a U.S. congressman and the Republicans' top candidate for Missouri's governor post. This is what Holshoff said. Ladies and gentlemen, this is our only day in court. It is his day in court, and it is ours. The temptation that you may feel is to go back into the jury room and, and just vote quick, and let's go. But I, but I want to tell you something. You aren't just 12 individuals. You represent those people. You represent the small community down the interstate in Benton, Missouri. And those people are looking to you for justice, ladies and gentlemen. You are our only hope. We put him at the scene. We put a gun in his hand. We put the victim with him. We have got blood on his clothes. Ladies and gentlemen, based on all of this evidence, I urge you to find this defendant guilty of murder and armed criminal action. Thank you. You already know what happened. In just a few hours, the jury returned the verdict guilty of second-degree murder in armed criminal action. I remember hearing screaming. I remember going numb. I remember everything in its own way dissipating and Uh, like I was standing somewhere that didn't exist. I remember hearing screaming. I remember hearing my mom screaming. I remember hearing my family wailing. I discovered later on that my cousin Michael got up and walked out. Of, well, Michael was there. My cousin Michael getting up and walking out of the uh, courtroom immediately and a cameraman may have been for Southeast Missourian, may have been for KFS 12, try to follow him. <laughs> Not a good idea. My cousin Michael, I was told, turned around and let him know that if he kept following him, he was going to hurt him. He made it clear that they had just convicted the wrong man and he was angry. He was angry that his little cousin He's going to prison. I guess my father walked out of the courtroom as well. He didn't know what to do. 
He was angry. He was really angry. He was furious, but he was crushed. Probably went somewhere and cried. Wasn't willing to show his emotions very publicly at that point in life. I remember hearing the screaming, though. And then I kind of came to, and I realized that it wasn't just my mother that was screaming, that it was me. And that I was screaming, it wasn't me. I didn't do it. It wasn't me. I didn't do it. The judge ordered them to take me into chambers. They came and got me and my knees gave out. I blacked out. They came to in chambers, some of my family and attorneys. And my, I was apparently on my knees with my head. When I came to, I was in my Aunt Kathy's lap crying so I couldn't believe it had just happened my family couldn't believe it had just happened there's a there's a an article somewhere they're photographing there's a photograph of her following me as they're taking me to the sheriff's cruiser to take me back to the county jail after I was convicted my mother was right behind me. Well, my mother had to tell her own son after that. Can't remember exactly how long ago. Long after that, she had to tell her own son visiting me in the county jail after I was convicted. You become whatever you have to become. You do whatever you have to do to get out, whatever that is. You become a monster if you have to become a monster. But don't ever change with me. Not with me. What mother should have to tell her son that? What mother should have to tell her son to become a monster if he has to become a monster? Thank you for listening to The Lawless Files, a production of Leadhound Publishing, LLC. The Lawless Files is hosted and edited by Bob Miller and co-produced by Bob Miller and me, Tyler Gray. We'd like to thank Jacob Wiegand, Jeff Long, Rachel Long, Jesse Dew, Kara Kaminsky, Chuck Kaminsky, Allison Miller, Shawnee Graves, Laura Ritter, Bobby Clubs, MJ DeGraff, Ben Matthews, and Mason Dukacek, who helped voice the court transcripts. Again, please go to thelawlessfiles.com and subscribe. Next time on The Lawless Files. So that's when I went to Bill Farrell afterwards and sat in his office, just him and I, and he more or less leaned back in his chair with his, with his hands crossed like I am now, and I told him exactly what went on, what I was told. And he just blatantly told me, he said, no, he said, uh, we've got the right guy. He said, case closed as far as I'm concerned. So 
I said, well, I said, I guess I just don't have anything else to say then. So I, I walked out of it.